0: Good morning, Calvary Chapel, The Rock. It is good to gather together this morning with you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We're going to get started right away and dive in where we left off in Matthew chapter 11. So let's ask the Lord who's present among us uh, to prepare our hearts. Now, Father God, as we look into your God-breathed word you sent to save us, to keep us on the straight and narrow path, that leads to life, to keep us blessed and living in wisdom and receiving your grace and your mercy and being a blessing to you and to others. We pray, Father, that you'd give us ears that hear, heart that can understand, and eyes that truly see so we can understand these words and put them into practice and be a blessing to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're getting underway here back in Matthew chapter 11. A bit of unpleasant business involved here with Jesus. Popularity is waning, and the crowds are becoming cold and indifferent and hostile. And so Jesus has to prep his disciples uh, about the world's rejection to him and the gospel, in the middle of it all, John the Baptist is, manages to send one of his disciples where he is. He's been in prison for two years, languishing away. And uh, he had some doubts and fears, and he was wondering if Jesus was the real deal or not. That's how desperate he got. And you'll recall uh, last time that he sent one of his disciples with the message, and Jesus' uh, short answer, yes, John, no worries, it's me. And then Jesus turns to the crowd, didn't he? And he's uh, praising John because they had grown cold to John, because John endorsed the Messiah uh, that they were no longer enthralled with. And so not only was Jesus losing his popularity, but also John as well, because the Messiah that he recommended and introduced to them uh, wasn't working out for them. And so uh, Jesus uh, then rebuked the entire crowd for their rejection of himself, the gospel, and John, you'll recall last time. And he said, well, We've tried everything with you people, heaven did. You know, we tried the A to the Z and everything in between. You recall last time we talked about that. This is the context leading up to the passage this morning. And so Jesus is saying, look, we, we tried the John the Baptist style of almost like a monk and serious and sober-minded and fastings and uh, all of this uh, really uh, strict and harsh, and thunderous messages. Uh, It was more like a funeral, and uh, hey, do you want to sing a song, a sad song? Or do you want to sing a happy song, like the Messiah, like Jesus came for weddings, and uh, a joyous, celebratory tone in Jesus' uh, preaching. And so he said, you didn't want to sing a sad song, you didn't want to sing a happy song, and we finally realized it's not about the song about us. You don't want to sing with us. And there was this rejection. And then that led up to the beginning of our passage this morning, which I'm just going to elaborate and then dive in at verse 25. But right before that, he looks at the crowd and he says, man, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. These are two villages there. And he said, for if the works that were done here and now through the Son of God were done in places like Gentile cities, uh, Tyre and Sidon, which is modern day Lebanon. And also he mentioned Sodom. He said, if I would have done this in Sodom, Sodom would still be around and you guys would have summer homes there. They'd still be like a resort by the Dead Sea. That's where Sodom was. And so Apparently, he says that it will fare, Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better on judgment day than those who were privileged to see God in a human body, to hear the voice of God, and to see what only God could do. Apparently, there are levels of reward in heaven and degrees of punishment in hell. And so he warned them. He said, look, you guys are too much. Who's been given much is required. And uh, so with that warning, he, he, he then goes into our passage now, uh, starting at verse 25, where it's not all about bad news. There are some in the crowd who are wanting to trust, and they're listening, and they're humbling their heart. And so he's going to say, even though there's this massive rejection of John the Baptist and my ministry and the gospel, for those who are listening to those who want to come and find life, the invitation is still on the table. So let's read the passage, and then we'll break it down as we always do, starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and to those and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then that wonderful invitation, Come to me, verse 28, All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there we finish up chapter 11 there. And like I said, it's not all bad news. Jesus uh, realizes that there are some in the crowd that are serious and want to hear him. And so he has three things uh, to tell them, and uh, those three things are to encourage those who are in the crowd uh, not to lose hope. And those three things are brought to you by the letter P this morning. All right, so verses 25 through 26 are going to show us a prayer. It's a quick prayer, but it's a prayer that reveals that it's not just the the wise and the so-called learned, those who think they know everything, uh, but the gospel comes to those who are uh, uh, willing to admit they don't have all the answers. So that's the prayer. And then there's a proclamation along the same lines. He doesn't want anybody to miss out. So he says, uh, the Father father and the Son are a package deal. And if you want to find life, if you want to find God, you have to come to him. And then uh, thirdly is that wonderful promise, right? So we've got a prayer, proclamation, and a promise. The promise is this, that uh, for those who will repent and humble themselves, uh, the offer is still on the table. As I said, the gates are wide open. And so uh, let's dive into verses 25 and 26 to begin there. Uh, with the quick prayer. And so uh, why don't I paraphrase? You have the words there on the screen, and uh, I'll paraphrase. So verse 25, at that same time, as he was warning that crowd who was snubbing him about their terrible fate, uh, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of all, because hiding these things from those who think they're so smart and revealing them to those who receive like with childlike faith. That was your good plan. That's what pleased you to do it that way. And so uh, let's dive in here uh, um, and take a look at this prayer. It's a quick one. Isn't it? It's one of these prayers that Jesus prays for the benefit of those standing around. Do you remember in John chapter 11, Jesus prays in front of Lazarus's tomb, and he and he prays, and then he says in the prayer. Father, I'm praying out loud. I know you heard me before privately about raising Lazarus, but I'm praying out loud now just for the sake of everybody here that they will hear me talking to you, connect the dots, and be saved when they see Lazarus come forth. And so this was one of those prayers where eavesdropping was welcome and uh, actually recommended here. He wants them to hear... That and anyway, he, he it's got good news and bad news depending who you are in the crowd. If you're for Jesus, it's good news, if you're not, it's bad. And so, uh, he's affirming those who are trusting, and he's trying to motivate uh, those who think they're smarter than God before it's too late. That's his heart. He wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, right? And so. Uh, first here the praises to the father now that's interesting he's he's standing there the whole crowd has got a sour face and he's telling them essentially i'm sorry but most of them are going to perish he's saying even though you're uh, the hometown where the messiah was and did most of his ministry he said "Uh, you're not going north you're going south and so then he busts out into a prayer of praise to God. So what's he doing there? Well, it's showing us that he doesn't take the rejection of the crowd and the dwindling numbers uh, personally, right? It just doesn't matter. He's not been out of shape by their lies or their slander. His self-esteem or his worth isn't impacted by the dwindling numbers. Uh, he rests in the truth. And so he can stand there and face all of that negativity and just say, I praise you, Father. I'm under your sovereign care. This is a good plan. It just doesn't matter how he's being treated. He's able to keep his peace and praise the Father and and not let it throw him into some sort of depression because uh, he's no longer admired and loved and people are leaving, right? So he says, I just praise you, God, because I'm under your sovereign care. One writer said this. We codependent creatures who find peace only when people and circumstances are favorable should learn a lesson here from our Christ." Yes, this is Jesus. This is why he can bust into prayer right there and and say everything's good. It's going according to plan. Uh, I like how Peter's in his first letter, chapter 2, says, "Uh, Jesus didn't retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Right, So we are to entrust ourselves to God. And so, you know, the words were getting meaner. The crowds were getting smaller. The reception was getting colder. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's Lord of everything. He's in charge of it all. And if I have the Lord, I have everything I need. It's not dependent on how people receive me or how well I'm liked and all of that. And so that's just one little rabbit trail I could find with that first idea there. And so the prayer really now starts with a negative response, right? Therefore, the smarty pants, right? Uh, he's saying, uh, it's all good. It's a, it's going according to your plan. And what kind of plan is that? The plan is that you've hidden these things, from the so-called wise and learned, right? So here's the point. You can't find your way to heaven through human wisdom and logic. So he's saying, if you guys think you're all smarter than God, guess again. So he's saying, like the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was the group of those leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That group was filled with scholars and PhDs and scribes, and they were all giving Jesus the thumbs down. And so he's saying, oh, God will bless a blindness in people who want to be blind. That even like today, you know, people say, oh, they're so much more enlightened than that old archaic gospel. They think they're wiser than the apostle Paul, more forgiving than Jesus that's the case. There's a problem. They want a more enlightened path. They're smarter than everybody else. Christians are uh, considered, um, you know, not. Uh, intelligent to believe the kinds of things that we believe, and so uh, this is kind of the idea there. And but this is what he's saying is that be careful—that's dangerous to think you're smarter than the Bible, smarter than God, because God is way ahead of the game. And so it reminded me of Psalm 18 in verse 25, where it says, "To the faithful you show yourself faithful; to the blameless you show yourself blameless." To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'll shoot straight with you if you are a shoot straighter. Shoot straighter, that's a good one. I'm going to be using that one. If you shoot straight with me, I'll shoot straight with you, right? But if you play games with me, Oh, I'm going to outsmart you and beat you every time at your own game. You see? And that's what he's telling the crowd. He's saying, uh, you know, if you want to mess around with the Lord, the Lord is going to uh, bless that. And you will find yourself on the other end of God really calling the shots. And so... It's like playing chess, right? You've got to be able to think ahead a lot to be a good chess player. Uh, there's a guy now, Magnus Carlsen. He's the reigning world chess genius, right? And he said he can see moves. He can see 20 moves. When he looks at the board and one guy takes his pawn and moves it, he can see 20 moves he imagines there. How many moves could God see when we take a move with our lives and God is going to, we're playing games with him? He sees more than 20 moves at a time. And so really, uh, he's going to win the game. God opposes those who are proud. He gives grace. To the humble. That's really the spirit of what's going on here with the smarty pants. He's saying, that's not a good idea. It's not a game you want to play with God. And so uh, then he says, but the Father will reveal and not hide truths uh, from the children. And obviously, that's not literal because. We'd have a whole world of children. He's not talking to children, necessarily. He's talking to adults who should have childlike faith. In other words, who humble themselves, who admit, hey, I don't have all the answers. Uh, There's a room in my head and my heart for for God to tell me how to live my life, what's right and what's wrong. And uh, I don't know it all. And that takes a little humbleness like a child, teachable, inquisitive, open, trusting. These are the characteristics that will help God to reveal truth to our hearts and lives. That's what he's saying. So he's saying if we humble ourselves and become more childlike, you know, teachable. You know, my grandson, three years old, he's almost four, little Xander, you know, driving him in the car one day. And uh, he's telling me about exhaust pipes. And he saw one, and he's telling me how exhaust pipes work. And he knew more about it than I do. And I was like, wow, man, you know a lot about engines and exhaust pipes. And he says, yeah, I learned it from my father. My dad told me, you know, and he has the cutest little voice. That's what Jesus is talking about. He wants to learn. He trusts whatever is put into that brain by his dad. His father teaches him. He's open. He doesn't say, yeah, I already know that. Duh. Not yet. That's for the teenage years. Uh, But right now, Jesus does say childlike. He doesn't say teenage-like, right? And so these are the qualities that help us receive from heaven Uh, One writer said, knowing that you don't know anything is the smartest thing an ignorant person can ever realize. And so that's his point there about needing humility. And so that's the prayer. He's saying, here's a way not to miss out. Here's the way to get God to reveal to you, not to conceal, not to give you over to your heart's desire of walking away from him. Uh, but to be blessed. And so we move on now to the proclamation, which is keeping in the same theme. All three things keep in the same theme. So the proclamation begins there. Uh, All things have been committed to me by my Father. So get this. That this is the most overlooked and most provocative thing Jesus has ever said. He's saying there, God has turned the universe over to me. He's given me, he's committed all things, he's delegated all authority in heaven and earth. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 28 when he gives us the great commission, doesn't he? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given by God the Father to God the Son. I'm in charge now. That's what he's saying. I'm equal to God, I'm in charge of the planet. So if you need anything from God, about God, to know God, you're going to have to find it at its source, me. Wow, that's incredible. You know, so many people, where did Jesus ever say in the Bible that he's equal to God? I want to answer, where doesn't he say that he's equal, not equal to God? Because it's, all, it's in every passage there. So he says, uh, he says, uh, he's the only, the Father's the only one who knows who I truly am, and I'm the only one who knows who God truly is. And I'll share that information with whomever I please. (laughs) That's an amazing thing. He's just saying, look, I got the corner market on God because I am the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Colossians 2.9, the fullness of God in a human body. So that's why he's saying, listen, to the Jews you call him the Father, the Old Testament Yahweh, God, and the Son is really a threefer. It's three persons, one God. You cannot have God the Father without God the Son and he makes that argument to them. So he's looked Looks out to the gr- crowd of haters, and he said, "He's saying this: I'm the only option you have." And they would say to him in John chapter eight, "We've got God as our Father. We don't need an intermediary." But he says, "You can't have God, the Father, without me, the Son. Whoever does truly believe in God will receive me because I come from God and sent from." God himself. And so Jesus is hoping to get through to them here. And so this remark, (laughs) all people, all destinies, all power, all dominion belongs to me. God has put me in charge of the world, is that great first statement there. And then he says, as I've been saying, you can't have the Father without the Son. And so you can't know God because God is Mutually, and they're exclusive in the relationship, and so really, uh, they are God, is self-existent, and he exists outside the visible, knowable realms. And so God truly is known only accurately within the Godhead. Does that make sense? So really, only the Son knows the Father, The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Spirit, and the Spirit knows the Son. And anyone Jesus determines to share that knowledge with. So that's really all he's saying. If you want to learn about baking bread, you'd go to a who? You would go to a baker. If you want to know something about the heart, you'd go to a cardiologist if you want to learn about god jesus says you have to go to me that's amazing and speaking of him saying come to me to find god is a nice segue to the grandest invitation of all we finish up this morning with verses 28 to 30. i'll paraphrase as you follow along Come to me, everyone, anyone who's inwardly exhausted, all beat up inside, weighed down, oppressed, and I'll give you rest. I'll ease your load. Verse 29, partner up with me. I'm not a taskmaster. I'm gentle. I'm not intimidating. I'm humble, approachable, and you'll find soul rest. For my yoke, partnering with me, it's easy. My requirements on you, light. All right? So that word can mean sweet and good and right. So let's talk about this as we finish things up this morning. And how can anyone not love this verse? One of my all-time favorites, for sure. Remember, uh, before, right before I became a Christian, I was riding along on Market Street there in a bus to go to the financial district where I worked in a bank. And uh, I was only 19 at the time, and we, pa- uh, we passed every day a-, a church, and the marquee always had something else. And this church marquee had come to me, I will give you rest on it. And I felt, every time we passed it, it felt like somebody was turning my chin to look at it. You know, I just could not pass. And then it became obsessive. It was like I, I didn't even want to go to work because I would pass that sign. It was haunted. It just had a voice, and it was calling me. And I remember thinking on the bus, why? I'm 19 years old. I'm having the time of my life. Why is that so inviting Oh, it sounded so like rest and peace of mind and fulfillment. And God was speaking to me, and it was just a few months later that I found that rest by coming to Christ. And so now the promise, the grandest invitation of all, why is it so Such a grand invitation. Well, consider the one who's doing the inviting and consider the unworthiness of the would-be guest. That's crazy. Listen to how Colossians describes Jesus. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him, all things in this world hold together. This is the one who's inviting anyone, whosoever, to come sit with him, to partner with him, to be joined to him, to drink of living water that comes from the palace of heaven, this is an amazing thing, and when you consider who the Most High God is inviting, these would-be guests, when he says all, that's a very big word. All means, in the Greek, it's incredible, it means all. And That all, the, the one caveat, the one qualifier is this, that you are emotionally downtrodden. How's that to qualify you for eternal life? Is that you feel really beat up and you don't want to take it anymore. That you're tired of emptiness and spinning your wheels and trying to make life work on your own. And here's the thing about this. This is good for non-Christians and unbelievers, but it's good for Christians up until you take your last breath and wake up in heaven. Because we get weary. We lose our first love. We start turning the Christian life into drudgery, and duty without love. Oh, and then we find ourselves, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. Well, God will say, yeah, my my yoke is easy. John says, the burdens of the Lord, they're not heavy. They're light in 1 John. You remember that? And so, yeah, he invites everyone. Thugs, thugs, bank robbers, murderers, rapists, looters. Sexually immoral people and regular secular people who live a really decent life outwardly. They manage their sin nature pretty well. Uh, the only problem is, is they hate God. They don't want him in their, their lives. They're passive-aggressive about it, so they just ignore him. Uh, remember I told you in the beginning about Corzin and Bethsaida? He says, woe to you because you are going to be judged so harshly. It never says anything in the Bible about that. those cities attacking Jesus or pushing him out of town. They don't do anything in the Bible to warrant those words except this. They ignore him. They don't turn to him. They don't do anything that you could say, oh, look at that. They deserve terrible judgment. Oh, no, as one writer said, these cities didn't attack Jesus. They didn't drive him from their city gates, nor did they seek to crucify him. These cities simply disregarded him. Neglect can kill as much as persecution can. That's William Barclay there. So all means all, and the one qualifier you feeling like your gas gauge is below E, and you really want to fill up with something that really you won't have to fill up over and over again. He says, come to me. I made you. I designed you. I created human beings so I know how to fill your life. I know how to fulfill you. Uh, there's a show, uh, This Old House, I love watching it because it's set in New England. It reminds me of growing up there. And their accents and all of that, which I love. And they have a segment on there that says, what is this gadget, right? And then they, 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 they try to figure out what the gadget is. And, or they try to use it. Until you really get a hold of the one who created the gadget, you'll never know how to use it to its Um, so that it can be effective, right? And so we have lives. God created us. He says, come to me. I'll I'll give you rest because I can tell you why you were created, what things will make you happy and fulfilled and blessed. And so he says, I will rest you in the Greek. It reminds us of uh, God taking the upper hand and forcing (laughs) Forcing the rest upon us, because that, that's how we are. That's why King David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. There's an, a, there's an initiative that God takes with us when we come to him. He, he's determined to help us find that peace and that sweet contentment, that what he calls abundant living. Or Paul called it life that is truly life that's rich and full and filled with joy, purpose, and meaning. And so he says, I've got what you need. Come to me. Notice, not come to the Father. Not go to God. Not go to the Father. Come to me and find what only God can give you. There it is again. Such a provocative claim. Indeed, He says, I got what you need. Come to me. I'll give it to you. Do you want water? Uh, Living water? You'll never be thirsty again. He tells the woman at the well, I got that. He says, I'll give you one drink from what I have. You won't be thirsty again. Then in John chapter 6, he says, are you hungry? Spiritually speaking, Uh, come to me. I got some bread for you. And if you taste of what I have, because I'm God and I made you for myself, once you eat of this bread, you, you are not going to be hungry for the things of the world. And he says, hey, you've got darkness, you need light, I'm the light of the world, come to me. Anybody who believes in me will never stumble around in the dark. He says, so listen, earthling human, whatever you possibly need, I'm the answer because I designed you for me. You see? And so that's why our life needs to be Christ-centered, gospel-centered. What was it, Augustine, who said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. Beautiful words, almost 2,000 years old, those words are. Can you imagine saying something that people repeat 2,000 years later? You're just a mere man, too. And so We finish up with this yoke. He says, take my yoke on you. In other words, the yoke was to help animals carry heavy loads, right? And so it's not that he calls us to a rest that's inactive. There's things to do. There's a mission. There's work. We're co-laborers with him. He's just saying the work that I ask you to do it's based on loving me and loving others and shining the light so that others don't perish. that's not hard stuff. That's beautiful and when you're giving and sharing and responding in your Christian life to duties because you love somebody, he's saying that's a yoke that's easy. that's a burden. That's light. You ask some love bugs who are getting married, is it going to be a chore to serve that person? It'll be, oh, so much work to do stuff for your the one you love? No, not at first anyway, right? When you're doing things in love, and that's why he says to the church, get back to first love and you'll find your joy again. Stop doing it because it's the right thing to do. Start doing it because you want to love God. Back, oh, many, many years ago, when I was first a Christian, I got a speaking engagement. And uh, I didn't want to do it. I couldn't do it. It was right before I went to the pulpit. And I looked around and I said, "I I can't do this. And I excused myself from the room. And before I went back into the sanctuary, I had a flash in my mind of the kind of person I was, and how God had changed me. And there's a scene in my head, and I was so thankful to God to be on the path that leads to life and not on the wide and broad road that leads to destruction. And out of that, that chokes me up to this day when I think about it. When I get in touch with that, Then I could go out to any lectern. I can do any unpleasant chore because it's motivated by love. So he says, take my yoke upon me. Learn of me. I'm gentle and kind and humble and non-intimidating. And so there's this love and joy and, and the sympathy and understanding coming from him which feeds into this wanting to respond and love back and work for God. It's not work. It's not work. Are you kidding me? That's why all of our rewards end up at his feet. We didn't earn anything. He's rewarding us for not destroying ourselves, you know? It's a beautiful thing to belong to him. And so the reason why it's not (laughs) a burden but easy and light is the character of the one leading. He's patient and kind, gentle, humble in heart. And number two, it's the nature of the work. The nature of the work, as I've been saying, is based on love and gratitude. And then finally, it's the source of our strength makes the burden not uh, heavy, but light. The source of our strength. Anything we do as Christians, he says, if I abide in you and you in me, the spirit, the fruit of the spirit it's the, not by mind and not by power, but by my spirit, says God. That's why his yoke is easy and His burden light. Let me finish up. I've used this illustration before. I love it. We were living in the city, San Francisco. The kids were young. I used to take them to the jumping off place up uh, in Sunset District where we lived and uh, there were hang gliders there and we had the dog and frisbees it was a lot of fun and i'm waiting talking to the guy who's ready to jump and he's waiting his turn so he's just standing there holding his hang glider there and i said uh you know we're talking i said i can't believe you're just going to step off like that and uh talking about the sport a little bit and then i said He's holding it like this, the cross beam. And I said, wow, that reminds me of Jesus and the cross. And he said, kind of rolled his eyes a little (laughs) bit, but he got what I was saying. And then he said, you know, the funny thing about this is it's heavy, and he had sweat, you know. And uh, he said, it is heavy, and I'm dragging it along. But at first, I think that I'm the one carrying it, and then I realized it's the one carrying me. And I thought, bingo, that's a nice sermon illustration and it's been with me many years because that's the Christian life. Learning how to die to self and live for God, to get out of the way and let the spirit rise up within the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Isn't the Christian life about laboring (laughs) to enter the rest it's the work is to learn how to stop working and striving and resting and trusting instead and taking him up on this offer come to me even you've been a christian a long time you can still hear this for the first time and say you know i'm on e i'm on empty and i'm tired i know better but I let myself get depleted and I am weary and heavy burdened. And he says, Come to me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your truth is forever <laughs> and it worked uh, the day before we got saved, the day after, and every day in between. We thank you for your patience and your long suffering for us. God, we. We love you. We're not very good at it. And we, we, we want to take you up on that offer, Father, to, to rest in your love and to work for you with an easy and light load. Help us to learn the secret of just resting in you and letting you work through our surrendered hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.